Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with best-selling author David Knorr. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and I am so glad to welcome David Knorr. He is the author of 11 books. Uh, he's a best-selling author. His latest book is Curve Benders. Uh, he's got so much to offer. I'm so glad to, to let you get to know him. David Knorr, welcome to The Indispensables. Bruce, it is good to be with you, my friend. Tell us, uh, for those who, I mean, you'd have to be living on the moon to not know about you, but but for those who don't know your story, explain, how did you get to where you are? Uh, you're very kind. Uh, originally from Iran, came to the U.S. in 1981 with a suitcase, 100 bucks. Bruce didn't know anybody and didn't speak a word of English. Uh, I've been blessed. I uh, grew up here in Atlanta, uh, finished my undergrad here, Emory University for grad school, and my career has really been in three phases. Phase one was technology. So IBM, Silicon Graphics, Business Objects. Phase two was really consulting. I cut my teeth at Coopers and Librand before we became PwC and uh, spent uh, several years as president of a company and then spent some time at a private equity firm. And interestingly enough, about 19 years ago, I went out on my own. What I do with global clients is really help them think about what I believe to be their biggest asset, which is their portfolio of relationships. The challenge is relationships are not a standalone concept. It doesn't make sense by itself. Nobody builds relationships because they're bored. So we focus those relationships on outcomes, on growth, on innovation, on lasting change, on aligning talent with value creation, on mergers and acquisitions, and I'm, in essence, seen as a relationship expert in many of these enterprise clients that I work with. So that, in a nutshell, is what I do. And you, one of your books is called Relationship Economics, right? You're exactly right. That's actually my, my, my first book, my seminal book. We've sold a couple hundred thousand copies of that one. And Wiley has just engaged me to write the, completely rewrite the third edition of that book that'll be out early next year. Yeah. And so, uh, and I, I have a couple books with Wiley, so I know they wouldn't be coming to you to do a third edition if, if it weren't selling like hotcakes. And, you know, it, people say like, you know, oh, it's all about relationships. But then some people, they think, oh, well, that means you got to play politics or it means you got to make best friends with everyone. But my experience, and I, I, I think uh, one of the reasons I'm so interested in your work is you're really an expert on something that I've seen in our research, which is relationships, they're more complex and nuanced than that. And right. And then if you try to play politics and just make best friends, that's that's not the right way to, to approach relationships in your career or for growth or for uh, business success. Am I right about that? Or, or how would you put it? You're exactly right. And, and what you're really referring to is that intellectually, people understand, certainly business professionals understand that relationships are important. And, and Bruce, I would submit a lot of people are very good at relationship creation, right? Pre-pandemic would have coffee meetings. We certainly have had our fill of Zoom meetings in the last you know 18 months. They struggle in bridging that relationship creation to relationship capitalization. 
So beyond understanding that it's important, what I've become an advocate of, what I've really spent the last 20 years as a student of, is how can you become more intentional? How can you become more strategic? How can you become more quantifiable in the relationships you choose to invest in? So a ton of research shows that an average individual can proactively manage about 100 to 150 relationships. So a million-dollar question for your listeners, which ones? And how do you know? And if you can't invest in everybody equally, how do you then prioritize what relationships you're going to invest in? By the way, some of the most valuable relationships in our future might be some of the people you're neglecting. So it isn't just those in your immediate purview it's really thinking about your journey, and I wrote about this in Curvebenders, from now to next, what relationships do I have? What relationships do I need? How do I really level up? How do I really invest in the right relationships that are very relevant to not just where I am, but where I aspire to get to? So what do you say to people who think, well, you know, gosh, this is somehow dehumanizing or are we talking about just networking and, you know, objectifying people in terms of our own success? And, 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 and I'm, I'm putting that on the table because I hear that from folks. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I, I actually tell people what I teach and what I philosophically and deeply believe in couldn't be further from this idea of, well, you're just going to, you know, you're teaching people how to manipulate other people, or are you just, you know, making it very transactional and, and, and you're using, but that's not it at all. I would submit that beyond your educational foundation, beyond your professional pedigree, your biggest asset in Bruce, in many ways, your only sustainable differentiator is your portfolio of relationships. And by the way, it's not just a sales thing or a marketing thing or investor relations or PR. And by the way, it's not just extroverts. I've met some incredible introverts that have amazing relationships. What your audience needs to hear is that everyone has a BS radar. And at the minute you're not authentic, the minute you're not real, the minute, and, and interestingly enough, Andy Stanley, our pastor at North Point Ministry says, the bigger the gap between who you really are and who you pretend to be, the more exhausting life becomes. And, and the more BS we all see in other people, the more authenticity we crave. So A, be you. Because you can't be Bruce, you can't be, you know, nor you, you got to be you. Number two, people are looking for that realness. They're looking for, listen, we all have to grow our businesses. We all want better jobs. We all want the outcomes we're after. What we teach is it's a heck of a lot easier to have your hand out if you start by giving a hand. If you start by investing in others, you cannot make that investment blindly and you cannot invest in everybody equally. So again, what I teach is a more disciplined, more consistent approach in how do you invest in relationships that you value, that are aligned with your values, that are relevant to where you're going and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And I mean, like I like to say, even if you're trying to use people, which is, you know, not a very uh, admirable way to look at relationships, but even if you're trying, well, what can I get out of this person? Are you better off trying to manipulate that person? Are you better off trying to badger that person, bribe that person? Uh, are you better off trying to flatter that person? Or, or are you better off really serving that person? 
and and being someone who whenever you interact with that person you add value for them like that, that even if you're totally selfish what you should do with other people is serve them and and so i say like whether you're selfless or selfish serve other people that what people are for that's what people are for to serve Unequivocally, yes, and and again, Adam Adam Grant talked about it in his in his book Givers and Takers. Years before that, I talked about relationship givers, those that altruistically give. They get something very euphoric from giving. Relationship takers, the only time they call is when they want something, and we all know it. And then relationship investors. And I often ask people, which one are you? And if I went and randomly asked ten people that that you know, which one would they say you are? Because unfortunately, takers don't see themselves as takers, and we all want to be nice. So if you've ever been around alcoholics, you know we, we enable that behavior. We make excuses for them. We don't want to create conflict. We don't want to push back. So as they keep taking, we keep giving, and then we feel bad about it because our own projects and initiatives get neglected. So you're exactly right. And if I may, very quick example – At the onset of this pandemic, Bruce, one of the things that I did, and I coach a lot of executives to do this, is I made a list of my top 100 business relationships. And it wasn't just, you know, immediate clients or prospects. It was coaches and mentors and people that I really value in my network. And I simply reached out and I said, how are you doing? And what are you seeing? And what are you hearing? And what are you struggling with? And what can I do to help? And I wasn't trying to sell them a speaking engagement or a coaching engagement or consulting. I simply said, which is what I know you're a big advocate of, how can I help? A, they were glad to hear from me. B, it's amazing what they share with you. C, you start to see what I call, and, I, and I write, I'm writing about this in, in this new edition, what I call seekers and solvers. You've got this relationship that's struggling with something and needs help. You've got another relationship that could absolutely help. So you put them together, and what happens is now you become a purveyor of relationships. And they'll remember how they met each other. They'll remember that you solved their problem. They'll remember that you added value in every interaction. And what happens is you elevate your brand. You elevate your value in their minds, in their hearts. And I got to tell you, I'm blessed. Beyond the lives and livelihoods of, of the past year, it was actually a really good year for our business. And that is carried over because of those investments I made in the first six months of this pandemic in just giving and helping others and really making sure I was seen as a valuable asset and a problem solver, not just someone who called and wanted something. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's funny because people who, you know, people want to be valuable. Everyone wants to be valuable. But um, people make the mistake that somehow the way to be valuable is to collect chips. Well, I always say if you want to be valuable, add value. You're exactly right. And just to build on that, I'm a big believer that in every interaction, in every single interaction, you have two options and two options only. You're either going to enhance the value, you're going to enhance your relationship, that your reputation, your, your perceived value, or you're going to dilute it. And it all depends on how you carry yourself. It all depends on how intentional you are about those outreaches. Sociologists call it being ambient aware. The more knowledgeable you become about your relationships, the more proactively you can nurture them. So next time I call, hey, how's Beth? And you have two teenagers, right? How are they doing? Aren't you guys doing college tours? How's that going? Right? And what happens is is people 
appreciate that you remembered or you certainly captured it somewhere. You're leading by asking about them and what's really happening with them. We'll get to the business part. And I got to tell you, being born abroad, you know, living abroad, this is so omnipresent in so many other parts of the world where they build relationships first from which they do business. Unfortunately, as Americans or many Westerners, we're so focused on the business part that if and only if the business part works, we'll think about building the relationship. So let me get the deal. Let me get the project. Let me get the initiative. Let me get that which I care about out of the way first. And then maybe I'll ask you about your family. Yeah, right. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll go out for a beer afterwards. Right. Whereas what they really care about is, listen, I've got my hands full with this kid taking the SAT and you know getting ready for college, or I've got my parents that have COVID, whatever it is. There's a whole different part of them that isn't part of that purchase order or isn't part of that you know project or initiative or deal. And if you focus on the relationship first, the outcomes you're after will come. But you have to be intentional about those relationship investments. And you have to be authentic too. Like if it, right. Don't you think if it, like, if you don't really care about what the kid, what their kids are doing, like I always say, well, it's polite to know if somebody has kids, I mean, you don't need to carry pictures of their kids in your wallet or know when all their birthdays are, but, but, but you have to be authentic, right? But if you're authentically interested in someone else's well-being and what's going on for them, whatever you're interested in, of course, everybody's the star in their own drama. So, but, it, but if you're not interested in the other person, it's going to be very hard to make any kind of real connection with that person. You're, you're exactly right. And by the way, they, they notice that, right? So, so you ask somebody how they're doing and as they're answering... You know, you you got the keyboards going and it's like, come on, dude, you, you know, it's it's it just you're not you don't really care or or worse yet in person. You ask them how they're doing. They're answering you and you're scanning the room looking for bigger fish to fry. And again, most people see right through that and they they see it as obligatory. They see it as you're checking off a box. They you actually again, you you're diluting your credibility. You're diluting the relationship when you do that. If you don't care, don't ask. But if you care, you've got to be centered. You've got to be focused. You've got to be in the moment. And again, I love stories, and I know you're a good you know, collector of them as well. Years ago, I have a meeting with a vice president at, at, a, at a big client of mine. I show up. I don't know if this has ever happened to you or your listeners. You show up for a meeting, and the person is physically there, but they're just mentally not there, right? They're, they're somewhere else. So I finally said, John, hold on a second. You don't seem like yourself today. He's like, yeah, you know, my wife of 17 years suddenly, you know, got out of bed this morning and said she doesn't want to be married anymore. Again, not something you would expect to hear, but if I would have at that moment said, okay, great, thanks, you know, good for you. Can we get back to what we were doing? Right? I would have completely shot my credibility and and any chance of, you know, us actually getting anything done. Instead, I said, listen, the stuff we're working on is not important. Um, their campus used to have this uh, beautiful walking path around the lake and it took 45 minutes to do a loop. I said, why don't we go for a walk? And Bruce, in 45 minutes, this guy just pours out his heart. There's kids involved and neighbors. And for us guys, I mean, full disclosure, this is really hard to hear. And I'm not a marriage counselor, right? There's nothing I can tell this guy that that just but what I did was just listen. Right. And, 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 and you're not his best friend either. But it turns out you were there and you were human and... That's what's going on for this guy, obviously. 
absolutely. And this guy just needs somebody to listen. And, and he pours his heart out. And when we come back, he was actually embarrassed. He was like, oh, my God, I took most of our time to talk about my, you know, my personal issues that you don't care about. And I said, don't worry about it. We did six projects together that year because I listened and, and I cared enough to listen. And, and I didn't I wasn't in his office to get a purchase order or check off a project. And, and I often remind audiences, you have no relationship between logos or buildings. Relationships are between individuals and how you choose to show up every single day with your own colleagues, but also relationships outside your organization matters more than you can imagine. Yeah. What I love about your approach is, um, you know, your whole MO is intentional relationships, strategic relationships, quantifiable relationships, um, uh, the, the relationship between relationships and innovation. But you also at core, the reason you're an expert or the reason you're able to deploy your expertise is because you understand fundamentally that this entity you're having a relationship with is a human being. Absolutely. And if you think about it, you know, people talk about the organizations. That organization is A, made up of teams. And last time I checked, those teams are made up of individuals. Right. And your parents and mine probably drove into us. People will prioritize projects, initiatives, tasks for people they like. Johnny Carson used to say there's a likability factor about all of us. And I'm about to drop some wisdom on your audience. You ready? Here's a four step process, four step process that will solve a lot of problems and will dramatically accelerate your path forward. Ready? In the words of the famed philosopher, Britney Spears, here comes some rocket surgery. You ready? Here we go. Like me, know me, trust me, pay me. It works in that sequence. If you're likable, if you're authentic, if you're real, people will invest time to get to know you. When they get to know you, they have to see. You can't just tell people to trust me. They have to feel it. They have to see it. They have to experience it. Only when they trust you will they buy from you. And not just your products and services, but also your ideas and your perspective and why we should do this initiative or this project or go after this opportunity your way. The minute you start to create shortcuts in those steps, in that process, you're shooting yourself in the foot. And how many people, Bruce, you and I meet that want to get to the pay me part as soon as possible? Hey, can we do that this afternoon? Whoa, 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 whoa. We just met. Again, sociologists tell us that when we meet somebody else, we give a little, they take, they judge, they give a little, we take, we judge. And it's this natural exchange. Too much, too fast. And most of us are like, whoa, 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 dude, we just met. Too little. And people are going to think you're cold. You're distant untrustworthy. So you got to come up with a natural, you have to figure out their natural rhythm and meet them where they are. And that's how you get ideas. That's how you get initiatives. That's how you get real change adopted throughout the organization. Yeah. And I want to get into curve benders, but before we do, uh, I'd love uh, for you to share some of your insights, some of your research about uh, the relationship between uh, how people interact and how they uh, get to know each other, how they communicate, and innovation. 
because I know you wrote a whole book about that called Co-Create. It was when you were flirting with St. Martin's Press. I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're all great folks. Yeah, you're exactly right. So so I want your audience to think about really the, the evolution of relationships in terms of stair steps, right? So step one is there a contact. You simply have their information, or maybe you've met them first time, but there's really no, not a lot of depth there, and you're not sure how relevant that might be. Over some time, with multiple interactions, they become a relationship. You, you Again, you feel trust, you create value, that value of, of mutual value, and there's an exchange of that value. So now there's a relationship. Now they recognize you, now they prioritize calling and emailing you back. And I tell people, you build relationships for, for three purposes, right? One is a reason. That's often a transaction, right? I show up, I deliver a speech for you, you pay me, that's a reason. Or I show up and, and you coach me, I pay you, that's a reason. Put several reasons together and you get a season. Now we've worked together several times. Put several seasons together and now you're on your way to a lifetime. So a relationship predominantly solves problems, predominantly addresses challenges for us. Predominantly, it creates also, you know, accelerates our access to opportunities. When we really feel the impact, well, the impact of that relationship, Bruce, becomes material. You're dramatically better off because of that person. You are, you have access to new opportunities. You've really solved that problem. You minimize the impact of that problem. Now that relationship really becomes strategic. And again, I coach people, we have three types of relationships. Personal, those are your friends. Those are your buddies. That's poker, that's fishing, that's golf, that's skiing, that's shopping, that's massages for the ladies. Those are the friends that you hang out with and they're a lot like us and they're discretionary. And we tend to pick them because they're a lot like us. The second type are your functional relationships. They're safe because of the context of your work together. I may not really like you, but I don't pick and choose people I work with or my customers. So nine to five, I'm putting up with this group. Let's be honest, some of our clients, some of our colleagues, right? But again, they're safe because of the context. When that relationship elevates to really that impactful, really material difference in our lives, in our research shows that we really start to think of them as more strategically. Think of an entrepreneur and his or her long-term accountant. Think of an entrepreneur and his or her long-term attorney. Think of an executive or a group of executives who've worked together in several different companies. Think of an investor that invests in an entrepreneur several times and they have really successful exits. They're more than just a transaction or a company or a point in our lives. They really become long-term. One of the fascinating things we found out about strategic relationships is this opportunity for co-creation. So when two or more parties come together and they identify a fundamental market void or a need, and they bring their respective expertise together, and they demonstrate a long-term vested interest in the outcome from that relationship, they co-create something. And Bruce, the easiest example I can give you and your audience is think about our kids, our spouses, our significant others. We come together. We want the best of each of us in those kids. And they don't stop being our kids at 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50. Imagine that co-creation in our kids if it was brought into our business relationships. 
that long-term viability, that long-term success makes them incredibly valuable. And that's what we've seen the progression of those relationships become. And, and does it have an impact on creativity? Does it, um, how does it drive creativity? Unequivocally, yes. So what happens is two, and I'm going to give you and your audience a couple of examples in a second. When two or more parties come together, they bring their respective strengths. And what is co-created from these strategic relationships is that void in the market. So one, one easy example to kind of think of is you've seen those Starbucks Frappuccino drinks in grocery stores. And what most people don't know is that's co-created between Starbucks and Pepsi. Starbucks knew coffee, Pepsi knew storage and distribution. And now it's a multi-billion dollar you know, line of business for them. Now let's switch gears to something they may not be aware of. They've heard of Adidas, the athletic clothing and, and shoes company and German company. Adidas is co-created with the German transit uh, rail companies, a tennis shoe where the your rail pass is embedded in the tennis shoe. Think about it. It's number one, our footprints are as unique as our fingerprints. Number two, Adidas doesn't want to be in the transit business. The transit guys don't want to be in the athletic clothing business. And they figured out that's one less thing I have to carry, number one. Number two, look at now all the other opportunities that it opens up for both of them. Think of airport security. Think of access, employee access to certain parts of the of the company. Now there's a whole lot of other opportunities to integrate two unique set of expertise to co-create something that, uh, again, Marshall Goldsmith calls it, um, you know, what do you call brilliant? Something so obvious that's right in front of us that nobody's thought of before. Hiding, hiding in plain sight. In plain sight. And our research shows those co-creation opportunities come from really strategic relationships who bring their respective expertise to that co-created solution. Yeah, there used to be a, a great television ad um, when Reese's peanut butter cups were first uh, put on the market. Of, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. You got peanut butter in my chocolate. Two great tastes that go together. But it's that's when I think of your book, Co-Create uh, 2017, um, I often think of the Reese's peanut butter cup. We're going to take a break uh, for, for a minute. Um, we'll be back with David Knorr a best-selling author. We're going to come back and talk about his new blockbuster, Curve Benders. It'll change your life. We'll be back in a minute. Hello, everyone. This is Mark Plinsheim with the Motivated to Lead podcast. Each week, we interview leaders and they share lessons learned from their careers. Our goal is to help you become a better leader. Bruce has been a guest on our show and he shared some great content. And each week we interview uh, people like Bruce who uh, bring some, some great information to help you grow as a leader. If you're enjoying this show, I think you would enjoy Motivated to Lead. You can subscribe or listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this show. Looking forward to having you join us at Motivated to Lead. We are back with David Noor. Uh, he is the best-selling author of 11 books. Uh, and we're going to talk now about Curve Benders, his new blockbuster, which is also, it just the time is exactly right uh, for people who, um, who need something to, to take them to the next level. Tell us about Curve Benders, please. Sure. So in our last segment, I mentioned to you the stair step of contacts become relationships, relationships become strategic relationships, 
Bruce, I was fascinated by, and I, and I got to tell you, I, I'm just naturally curious. And and full disclosure, I'm 53, and I've been thinking a lot about what will the next decade of my work look like. Right? I don't I don't envision retiring. I'll probably slow down at some point. I like riding motorcycles and spending time with my family and all that. But I love what I do, and it doesn't feel like work. So this pandemic, in particular, also, you know, as an example of a black swan event demonstrated how woefully underprepared we were for mass disruption, not just to the way we work, but also the way we live, the way we play, and the way we give to others. So it it made me think a lot about relevance. How do we remain relevant in face of constant disruption? Again, I've embarked on a four-year longitudinal research on forces that will continue to disrupt our lives. And this pandemic is, by the way, just one example of 15 we identified, that's the entire chapter two, that personally, organizationally, industry, and even some transitionary ones like economy and technology are going to continue to disrupt every facet of your life. This is your model, the the sort of 15 forces that, and by the way, I mean, for anyone, even if it's worth having the book just to have that lens through which to see the future, in my opinion. That's exactly right. So, you know, the entire second chapter is we believe more disruption is headed for us in the next decade than we've ever seen before. And I've got examples and, and, and a ton of research that shows that. So in face of those 15 forces at a minimum, how do you remain relevant? And relevance isn't just a point in time. You, you can't like be relevant today and not relevant tomorrow. You can, It's an ongoing pursuit, right? So what I identified were... Certain individuals that come into our lives, Bruce, that are not short-term transactional, but they have a profound impact in shaping both our direction and ultimate destination. And a really good example is think of your journey. Think of where you've been. Think of what you've done. And most people can think of one or two. Maybe it was a, a college professor. Maybe it was an early boss. Maybe it was a you know, board member. Maybe it was someone that took you under his or her wings and didn't just teach you about a product or service, or, but they profoundly shaped, again, your direction. And if you look back, this is 20 years ago. This is 30 years ago. You can point to those individuals in having shaped the manager, the leader that you've become. I called those relationships curve benders. So then I got really curious. Is this, does this just happen haphazardly? Does these people just fall from the sky in our lives? Or maybe do, do they, is it about the curve bender or is it about, you know, are some people really good at attracting curve benders? Love that. Love, you're exactly right. And, and as I start talking to people, one of my own curve benders, I, I distinctly remember like it was yesterday. We're having dinner in Park City and I love sushi. And over sushi says, oh, I love this idea of how can we find and meet curve benders in our lives. But I think a more profound question would be, how do you become a curve bender in the lives of others? How do you take those that are in the spring of their careers under your wings and teach them, shape them, mold them into the managers, into the leaders that you believe they can become? You see the right ingredients. They don't see it. They may not see it in themselves. And by the way, uh, of over 100 executives that I interviewed, I asked them, 
is there a common thread between your curve benders or curve benders in your life? And the most consistent answer was they saw the best version of me when I couldn't see it myself. They saw the right ingredients. They saw the potential. They saw what I could become. And they nudged me in that direction. They guided me. They became my guardrails. They became my Sherpa in that direction. And I'm and I'll be forever grateful for the impact, the influence they had in my life. What's the difference between a mentor and a curve bender? I mean, what one thing I was thinking, David, is that mentors maybe have to stick with you your whole life. You only know it in retrospect. But a curve bender could be someone you just encounter one time and they turn things upside down for you. You're exactly right. So so that's that's a very common question I get. What's the difference between, I say, a coach or a great boss and a mentor and a, and a curve bender? And you're exactly right. A, a great, great boss, great coach, great mentor are, are often very focused in one slice of our life, one facet of our life, one specific area of our life, right? I need to learn how to be a better manager. I need to learn how to become a better servant leader. I need to learn how to do business more globally and really elevate our business to a very different level. Those are all fantastic examples of coaches and mentors that come into our lives. Curvebenders shape our direction and destination. You're right. It might be a, and I'm going to give your audience another really fascinating example in a second. It might be a chance encounter. It might, I hope, and the premise of the book is if none of us have a crystal ball, if I did, I'd be on the next plane to Vegas. David, by the way, I have a crystal ball. It's on my mantle. But the problem is it's just a metaphor. <laughs> right. So so, so none of us can predict what's going to happen, but we can all plan. So in the book, I give you seven steps to meeting potential curve benders. But I got to tell you, and you brought this up. You're right. There could be a flash in our lives. I, I interviewed one executive. And I said, well, tell me about the curve benders. And they're like, oh my gosh, I, I, you know, I can tell you about this individual. And by the way, they drove me to bankruptcy and I lost everything. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Curve benders are positive and they're constructive and they elevate us to a very different. He's like, yeah, but this guy drove me into bankruptcy. And because of that experience, I was able to completely rebuild. And I created a very different life than I had before I met him. And now I'm in a quandary. Now I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're right. This person did shape your life, but in a very negative way. And I still see curve benders very positive and constructive. So we ended up calling those negative contacts that come into your lives as fender benders. Ooh, I like it. And if you think about a fender bender, pain in the rear completely disrupts your day, if not your, your life for a while, but you do recover from it and you hopefully learn from it and you learn what not to do the next time. So, so curve benders are in fact positive forces. They're positive and constructive forces that elevate us to a different level. And fender benders are the ones you want to eliminate. Uh, although I guess sometimes you could get fired from a job or driven out of business. And then on the other side, it turns out, you know, I was meant to do something. I was meant to open a flower shop. Right. And, and, I, and I use a personal example with those often. So again, you know, I'm passionate about motorcycles and I ride and and uh, now my son and my daughter ride. And most people you talked about motorcycles, their, their first impression is, oh my gosh, that's so dangerous. Number one, the technology has come a long way. We now wear chest plates, back plates. I actually wear an airbag. So it's a vest 
that attaches to the bike that if we separate, not if I walk away, but if I separate, the whole thing becomes an airbag. The thing has gone off four times. And what I'm getting to is falling on a motorcycle is not a matter of if, it's when. But if you think about and you go back and and really think about and analyze what happened, it's often, believe it or not, user error. You either are on a bike that's too powerful than your skills, or you do something that you shouldn't, or it's the surface, or most cases, the mistake is 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 a pilot error. Again, falling on a bike is not a matter of if, it's when. Only when you learn from your mistakes, only when you learn from what didn't go well, will you then become a better rider. Well, then you anticipate that challenge when it comes up again, when you hit that pothole, when you start to skid, when you ride in the rain. And that falling is part of the learning. It's part of the growth. It's part of becoming a better rider. And that's exactly the same thing with our relationships. Getting fired, what could you have done? Yeah, I can spend the energy and be mad about that, you know, good for nothing SOB boss of mine, former boss of mine, or I can really focus on what could I've done differently? What should I learn from that? What will I do differently in the next job? What will I choose to do? Now? What skills? What knowledge? And as you said, do I really want to go back to the grind of, you know, 200 plus days on the road and what I was doing? Or you know what? I think I would be happy with a local franchise where I sleep in my own bed every night. And, you know, I, I really think of more of a work-life blending and not the struggle of a work-life balance. Yeah, what, what is the difference between work-life balance and work-life blending? Glad you brought it up. So, so for years, for years, I don't know about you, I've struggled with this notion of balance, right? When I'm working, I'm wishing I was on vacation. And when I'm on vacation, I'm worried about the emails that's piling up at work. And I hate, I hate being the guy with the laptop next to a pool on a vacation And you hate to see it, especially when the kids are in the pool playing. So I've always believed that's a fallacy and that's a struggle. And and it's just this constant tug of war between our personal aspirations and our professional obligations. So years ago, a mentor, again, one of my own curve benders, drove into me that, Noor, you you don't have a personal life and a work life. You have one life. So the sooner you figure out how to integrate those two, in essence, your vocation with your avocations, the happier you're going to be. So let me give you an example. I'm blessed to work with a client and putting on, a say, a leadership development program. Actually, this is coming up Wednesday, Thursday, Friday in New York City. And we're done Friday by noon. Before, I would jump on a plane and fly right back home. Now, I fly my family up. Friday afternoon, and we spend the weekend together in Manhattan. I pay for my hotel. I pay for my own expenses, obviously. But now what I'm doing is I'm integrating. I've got to be there anyway. We love Manhattan. We love being around the city. Why not integrate that professional obligation? I need to be up there for this event with a personal aspiration, which is I'm going to go spend quality time with my family. And we've done this with my kids are now 19 and 17. We've done this with them ever since they were little. So I work with a client that, again, sent me to Amman, Jordan, Cairo, and Jerusalem for leadership programs. I took my kids with me. And because their teachers knew what their dad did for a living, they're like, go. Because we can teach you about Jerusalem in a book. And most people are not lucky enough to go to Amman or go to Cairo. Or you can get on a plane and go. Go see it. Go experience it. And by the way, when you come back, do a report on what did you see and where did you go and 
what the experience was. So I coach a lot of leaders, figure out ways to integrate your work and that which you feel like you have to do with your personal aspirations, with your family. As you and I know, our kids grow up entirely too fast and you regret missing those, those, those years with them. Yeah. And so, David, I, I, I know that, uh, you know, you and I are very fortunate uh, uh, that uh, we, we've, you know, uh, we've managed to make lucrative careers and we travel a lot so we can bring our family along. I, I, I my wife hasn't traveled with me in, in a while because she was finishing a book, but thank God she has finished it. And so she actually just came with me the last few days. So I'm with you. And, and I know that, you know, most of the people who have the opportunity to work with you, you know, maybe they can take that lesson too. But what about somebody who doesn't have a travel schedule? Like, is there another example of somebody who, you know, they go to work every day? How do they blend? No, no question. So, so interestingly enough, Bruce, I'm, I'm bullish on trends that this pandemic accelerated. I'm bearish on the trends that this pandemic is trying to change. And one of the trends that I'm really excited about is you you know you and I've been working from home I, you know for years right so this wasn't anything really that drastic for for people like you and I what i get excited about is a whole lot of people now have been introduced to the quality of life they can have especially as knowledge workers working from home but it's not just working from home i recently wrote an article that i called the wfx where x marks the spot because as knowledge workers, as long as you and I have internet access, we really can work from anywhere. And by the way, I know for a fact, an employee, a, a 50 hour a week paycheck collecting employee at the onset of this pandemic bought an RV. His kids were home from school. His wife was working from home. They bought an RV. They put internet access in this thing and they drove from California to Maine. Because they can work from anywhere and the kids can learn from anywhere. And they chose to integrate, as I said earlier, their personal aspiration. They've wanted to do that for years, but they've never been able to because they were both going into the office and kids were going to schools. And they were able to integrate their personal aspirations with their professional obligations. So that's really the driving force. And I've always believed when there's a will, there's a way. And you can find ways to integrate. Start small. You don't have to take six months and ride an RV cross country. Start to start small. Um, in Atlanta, um, you know, summers are hotter than hell. I'm, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure the the surface of the sun is booked because in Atlanta, <laughs> in Atlanta, we, we it's really hot and it's humid, and a lot of companies are starting to you know quit on Fridays at noon. Great. Use that Friday afternoon to go. Go get in the North Georgia mountains, which is 10, 15 degrees cooler. But you got to figure out ways to integrate more of that again. Yeah, I, I think I love, David, I love your expression. You're bullish on trends that the pandemic has accelerated. And I think that's a, a, a great way to put it. It's a great concept. And I think you're right. I mean, probably one of the biggest transformations for so many people is realizing how much work can be done. Um, not, you know, you don't, that doesn't have to be done in a particular location at a particular time. And all these business leaders and managers who were so sure uh, that, that the work had to be done in a particular place during certain hours uh, have been proven wrong. And, and, and what I fear, Bruce, is that we go back to 
what we were doing before. And we don't learn anything from this pandemic. Now, certain certain roles, if you think of manufacturing or certain service delivery roles, you, you got to physically show up and those are expected. But for most knowledge workers, as you and I talked about this, it really can be done from anywhere. By the way, you dramatically just elevated the quality of the life of those employees. Because I'd rather spend time with my wife and I'd rather be home with my dog and I'll get, by the way, I'll get the work done. I tend to come back and do more work after the kids go to bed. So a lot, you're right. A lot of leaders are shocked that productivity has gone up. The, the flexibility, the convenience, the comfort. And I cannot count the number of CEOs who have said to me uh, that their real estate footprint, you know, some have said, oh, but I signed a seven-year lease on this huge facility just before the pandemic. Uh, but but plenty are saying, hmm, gee, the amount of money we spend on commercial real estate, I think we're going to save a lot of money going forward. And, and now how can we redirect that in investing in our people and in their infrastructure? And let's get high speed access and a digital, you know, better digital cameras and lighting. And let's create, you know, more. F- I've got several clients, Bruce, that are testing four day work weeks. You're, you're working 10 hours anyway. Might as well do those Monday through Thursday and Fridays go invest back in you. Because one concern I have is the level of productivity that we're experiencing right now is just not sustainable. And you're going to have a lot more people burn out if we're all working at, you know, and, and a friend of mine says, when did working from home become sleeping at work, right? <laughs> because we're, we're all working so many hours and we're working a ton. So that self-care is going to be really critical. Another reason this idea of work-life blending becomes that much more valuable. Yeah. And, and so I want to ask you about a couple of the concepts in your book. Uh, uh, you talk a lot about uh, or you write a lot about nonlinear growth. Um, and I want to I, I want to I, I learn more about that. I want to learn more about personal market value. Yeah. So nonlinear growth uh, again. It came from this notion that to remain relevant, you're going to have to learn and grow. So that that lifelong learning can no longer be a mantra. It can't be wall art. It's got to be something you deeply believe in. Unfortunately, for most adult learners, our learning to date has been a truck ramp. That, that 45 degree learn, 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 maybe at some future point apply. And Bruce, the best example I can give your audience is most of our undergraduate degrees. I don't know when was the last time you went and looked up differential calculus. It's been a while for me, right? But you know what? We spent four years learning stuff, some of which we haven't tapped into since then. I don't believe that model, that truck ramp, that 45 degree learning linear growth is, is going to be relevant moving forward. So what I talk about is is the hockey stick. It's that nonlinear growth. I don't need a four-year MIT degree. I just want to learn how to code. So can I go take a 30-day class, learn how to code, immediately apply it to solve a problem, and then learn something else? So that much more rapid learning application knowledge, skill, knowledge, behavior, and a rapid succession of that really is what I believe is going to keep us relevant. So instead of the traditional 45-degree truck ramp, how do we now embrace a nonlinear or the hockey stick to learn and grow at an accelerated pace? That's one. If you do that, when you do that, and your audience needs to hear this, our research shows that the arc of almost any role, any job is about three to five years. So in three to five years, you've pretty much figured out how to do that job. 
And let's be honest, at some point, it starts to become autopilot, right? You kind of know what to do and how to do it. And you just, you're showing up. And by the way, it starts to show up in how you show up. You're not preparing as much. You're trying to wing it more. You're like, I already know how to do that. And what happens is you get bored. And uh, a colleague, Whitney Johnson, introduced this idea of a personal S-curve in her book, Disrupt Yourself. I took that personal S-curve a little deeper, and I've identified something called a refraction point. So at that peak, think of an S, at that upper end of the S, at that peak when you get bored, you start to flatline, that's when I believe a curve bender can dramatically change your trajectory and really help you create that next growth journey. When you embrace this nonlinear growth that I just talked about, you elevate what I wrote about in the book as your personal market value. As I mentioned in my introduction, I spent six years at a private equity firm. We bought and sold 110 different companies. And any financial investor will not only do a lot of due diligence up front, but will make certain moves to improve the value of the company. You've seen this. They'll acquire another company. They'll expand their product portfolio. They'll go to international markets. All of these moves improve a company's value. I start asking, what if we applied that same idea to our personal value? So what job do you have today? What skills do you bring today? And how do we elevate that over some period of time? I know you want to become a vice president. What will that take? What will that journey from now to next look like? You cannot leave your personal and professional growth to the HR department. You've got to become the CEO of your own growth. And if you do that, I've given you a set of stair steps to really build your professional brand, really build your storytelling capabilities, really build your financial acumen, and really work your way up to the best version of you, the future value of you in a more systematic and disciplined process. And that's sort of the building your personal market value. And how, I mean, if, if you don't have the good fortune of running across a curve bender, I know you have a seven step, uh, seven steps to curve benders. What, what, what are the seven steps? Because we're running out of time and I think I would be negligent if I did not uh, uh, give you a chance. And if I didn't give the audience a chance, David, to, to, to hear these seven steps. Right. This is this is the part they're going to listen to over and over again. All right. This is the nuggets. Here we go. So it's the chapter three of the book and the seven steps. Number one, you got to start with a really strong personal foundation and that's of a mindset. So what I advocate is you need a growth mindset. You need a digital mindset. You need an entrepreneurial mindset, regardless of what's on your business card. Those three are critical. With that, you make step number two, a professional commitment Bruce, my dad drove into me and he always said, I don't care if you're a garbage collector, commit to being the best garbage collector you can be. And we've got way too many people that are just punching the clock, collecting a paycheck day in and day out. Commit to being the best version of yourself in that existing role and really exceeding existing expectation of yourself. And even if it's right, even if it's not your like burning passion, hey, this is what you're doing. Why would you do it anything other than the best you can do it? That's, that's exactly right. And when others see that you're passionate about it, you're driven to really excel in that existing role, it opens up all kinds of other doors. Number three is really a catalyst. And I want to remind your audience of, you know, taking them back to the first chemistry class, when you combine two chemicals, it created the reaction. A catalyst is really an awareness of either something that's missing 
or something you aspire to reach, a new height. I want to go pursue other opportunities. I've reached the ceiling. I want to go do something else. That catalyst drives step four, which is immersive inquiry. You jump in both feet with what does that future version, what does that future lens look like? And you really, that becomes in many ways a spark. What's possible? What's probable? And what does my path there look like? Leads to step five, which is strategic relationships. What relationships do I have that can help fill in the gap for me? Leads to step six, which is agile execution. As they give me advice, as they introduce me to others, as they give me those steps, I go execute them. And you don't want to abandon those relationships, which is step seven. It's it's all about connection cadence. Come back to your relationships and update them on your progress. They're much more likely to introduce you to someone who becomes a phenomenal curve bender in your journey from now to next. So it comes back to relationships. Unequivocally, yes. And you and your audience would be completely disappointed if I said, no, it's all about cooking. Because the, <laughs> my favorite... My favorite thing to make when it comes to cooking is reservations. But yes, relationships are at the epicenter of your personal and professional growth, of you remaining relevant, and you elevating yourself, your role, your responsibilities to a very different level in this growth journey. But it seems like what you've done in Curvebenders is is give people... Uh, a way to go inside themselves first before so they can come back and as you say show up when they're when they're building those relationships absolutely and i want to remind your audience there's a reason the airline safety videos tell us to put the oxygen mask on ourselves first before we help anybody else if you don't start with a healthy self if and that's by the way that's also your personal market value foundation is this core set of kind of must-haves, if you don't start with a healthy self, you're of no value to anybody else. So you have to do some introspection. You have to be candid with yourself in what is going exceptionally well in my life? What's really going well? What am I most excited about? What do I believe in? Where are my values? And how do I build on those to then really nurture relationships with others? David Noor of the Noor Group, by the way, and based in Atlanta, best-selling author. Uh, the new book is Curve Benders. Thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Delightful to be with you always, my friend. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, uh, you're, uh, I could listen to you all day. I could talk with you all day long. And uh, I think this is one people will listen to multiple times. So thank you so much. In our next episode, I'll talk with Ted Sunquist. We talked a lot about football, starting with the United States Air Force Academy. And he went on to become general manager of the Denver Broncos and a whole lot more. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.